All right, everybody. Welcome back to another sports shooting podcast. Take two <laughs> on deck. We have Jason Bradley, Jared Fox, Jeff Cawthon, and special guest Jeremy Reed. You guys just missed out on 15 minutes worth of gold. Here we go again. It's going to be way boring the second time. <laughs> yeah, I gave I gave my best effort the first round, so... This is kind of like a reshoot. Like the reshoots never go well. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's start backwards. So, just so you don't have to repeat everything you just said, let's start on a different topic and come back to that. Yes. So Jeremy here is a uh, is a well known pistol smith. I think. I think at least like two hundred people have seen your pictures on Instagram. Yeah, all the old fuds that like nineteen eleven forty five. It's, it's boomerpistolsmithing.com, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> so so what, why don't you start out with, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, how you got into the uh, career of being a gunsmith, and uh, we'll, we'll start there. Yeah, so I've always enjoyed uh, building stuff. I've been pretty good with my hands. Uh, my wife and I had just gotten married. We've been married for like a year and a half, and I found this uh, class online uh this guy was teaching about how to build 1911s and i thought hey that's cool and so i literally took all of our savings every dime we had uh and went and took the class uh with a guy named bob rogers um it was a one week build your own class uh he's still teaching them but not not for very long but uh he kind of took me aside and said hey if, if you want to do this as a career you're you have you have enough talent uh to do it and uh, which talent that's I like that I use that word. We'll get I have a feeling we'll get back to that later. Uh, but but uh, he, he kind of took me aside and said, hey, uh, he, he would help me out as much as possible. And I went went out to, to his place. He was in Arkansas at the time and went out there by myself for a week and, and spent some time with him. And I helped him teach another three or four classes out there and uh, started working on guns and and slowly building guns. Um, that's what I've been doing doing since then that's probably been i don't know i need to look back at my books and see what year i actually started probably about seven eight years i've been doing that maybe nine i don't know did you work on glocks uh no you you need, you need to dude wilson's in the glocks ed brown just got into the m&p game i mean oh, really dude i can send you a pallet of plastic cz's Glocks are perfect. There is nothing to fix on them. <laughs> All right, so uh, you do that. I'm sorry, but do you, so that's your full time job. Yes. Yeah. So the guns I build are uh, most competition shooters aren't super interested in in the work that I'm doing. Um, my my main focus is on really high end guns um, that are. Honestly, they're kind of ridiculously expensive, but they also take a ridiculous amount of time to, to get the details uh, to the point that I do. Uh, my premium grade guns start at $7,000 and go up from there. Um, and I think that's, that's way too much to pay for a gun. Uh, but at the same time, I think the work, uh, there's, there's, not many people, there's not many people turning out the work that I do. Uh, there's, there's just not that many that, that put that much time into the, the details. So, uh, so. I, I think the most interesting thing you post on your guns when you're building them is 
how much how much effort you take into making slide stops perfect. Just curious, how long does all that extra hand beveling and everything take with a file? A lot. Uh, kind of we were talking about earlier, like I don't necessarily start a stopwatch whenever I go into it, um, but for my for my premium grade guns, uh, for those to go out of my shop, they're basically everything is as close to perfect as I can get. Uh, so that's symmetrically. That's any sort of lines uh, on the gun. Uh, I'm trying to get them as, as close to perfect as I can. Uh, no cosmetic issues at all. Um, if I didn't need the money, I would probably never actually finish a gun because I've never finished one that's totally perfect. Uh, but at some point, at some point, you got to just say, okay, this one's this one's good enough, and we'll kick it out the door. And so that's that's kind of what I do with those. I do I do have a match grade gun that that's more like how I build my my personal match grade guns, uh, and that's everything functionally is the same as my other ones. I just don't pay too much attention or as much attention to the cosmetics. So if there's file scratches in it, the lines aren't straight or anything like that, then those get to stay in the gun. Uh, but the performance of them, accuracy, trigger jobs, reliability, that should all be the same as, as the other guns that I build. Uh, what's the price on one of those? Uh, those, are, those are in the uh, 4500 to 5000 range. Uh, a lot, li a lot limited options. The, I don't, I don't offer a whole lot of options with that. It's kind of, kind of that's. If you want one, it's because you want one because you want to shoot it, uh, and you don't want to be afraid of of messing it up too much. So I kind of, I kind of like when those have scratches as they're going out because people aren't too afraid to run them. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of my guns don't get shot a lot, and I really build all of them um, with a shooter in mind. It's, I kind of like that. I'm one of the few gunsmiths, maybe other than Eddie Garcia who actually shoot a lot and shoot at a pretty high level. Uh, and I think that makes a difference in how I build my guns. Uh, and I build every gun to shoot. Um, a lot of times some people doesn't, don't want to take a $10,000 gun and put it in a holster and Kydex holster and carry it every day and get it all scratched up. But I wish they, I wish they all did. Uh, I think guns look better. Um, they look, I think they look good when they leave my shop, but I think they look better when they've got 50,000 rounds on them and a hundred thousand draw strokes. I, there's there's nothing to uh, I can't do anything in the shop to kind of emulate that look. You primarily build off of Colts, right? Yeah, for the most part, um, they are they have issues. Uh, they have a lot of issues. Um, usually, their holes are in the right spots, um, and that's that's kind of one of the most critical things on a night's level is, is are the holes drilled in the right place. Uh, but they also and, still, and, the, and they they need to be straight. Is that what you mean by in the right place? Yeah, right, yeah. right. Uh, so on, on a 1911, the, pretty much everything is located off of the slide stop pinhole. Uh, so you have that, and then every other hole has a specific dimension that it's supposed to be from that location. Um, and Colts are usually pretty good on those. It's when the holes get off of those dimensions. That's when you really run into guns that trigger jobs are hard to do on them. They might be hard to make reliable because uh, just stuff is not in the right spot. And Colts are normally in the right spot. Uh, they're, they're usually at least workable. There's also just Colts were the original pretty much. Um, so that just having that Colt on the slide, there's a lot of guys that still like on the high end guns. They just like, they like seeing the pony on there. Uh, so it's just kind of a classic look that, that a lot of people like. And what would you say uh, you are best known for on your builds? Like features uh, or types of things you do? Um, 
definitely uh, my grip safety fit, which is – it has almost nothing to do with the build, but it does – I think it does kind of show how much care somebody is going to put into their work, uh, just how the grip safeties fit. And I think how it's blended is the most important thing. You look at a lot of people's guns and how they blend a grip safety, uh, and they just pretty much pin it down and take a rotary tool and, and just grind it away. And it takes a lot more work for me to do that, uh, even though it's kind of an ancillary part uh, that kind of does show it. And then the, the, the other thing that, that has kind of become synonymous uh, with my build is, is my D-horns and then more specifically what I, I call my bevel D-horn. Uh, so rather than going through and, and rounding all the lines and softening them, uh, I go through and cut a bevel on all the, any of the hard lines um, and trying to cut that on all the curved surfaces and everywhere and have a consistent bevel through the whole thing and doing that by hand um, is quite tedious. And then cutting it with a file, and then you have to go back in with, with sandpaper and get all the file marks out of that without smearing that line uh, is quite a bit tedious. And I kind of regret the day that I first did that. Uh, it, was, it was a really cool idea. It was like, hey, nobody's doing this. Uh, this will be kind of a way I can kind of separate myself from other people. And then from that day, almost everybody has wanted that. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's kind of a pain to do, but it is something somewhat signature about my work. If one of our two to three listeners that is super wealthy wanted one of your guns, <laughs> how, how long until they would receive it? Uh, I may have one. I have a customer that, uh, uh, has already sent the gun in, and so I may have one actually available here towards the end of this year, start of next year. Uh, that's that uh, he his kind of his financial situations if something came up, uh, and so he's pro he's probably going to need to back out. I don't I don't like doing that, but he's a he's a past customer and a good friend, and so I'm probably going to build that as a spec gun, and so it will probably be available for sale. So that that cool. is an option. Um, otherwise if they just want to get on my list, it's in the 2021 right now. Um, which honestly isn't for a lot of Smiths, uh, kind of in the realm that I work in. Uh, that's really not that long of a wait list. I kind of keep it kind of short, um, on purpose so that I don't end up with stuck on, I don't want to be committed to somebody seven years from now to a gun that maybe seven years from now, I don't necessarily want to build that gun anymore. Uh, so so I try to keep it fairly reasonable on my wait times. And and you primarily do full builds, right? You don't you don't take any piecemeal work. Yeah, at this point I'm only I'm only doing full builds. So you won't do uh, reliability jobs on every listener's Kimber form? Uh no, I have I pretty much just don't work on Kimbers. <laughs> I mean there's no reason to. They are they are ready to go. They're perfect out of the box. <laughs> <laughs> so if, if you don't want to wait those that, that's that's actually not a true statement uh there's listeners thinking hey jeremy reed said those kimbers are great uh don't actually go buy a kimber you heard it here folks if you don't want to wait until 2021 for a reed custom pistol just go buy a go buy a kimber at your local gander mountain you'll be ready to roll yeah yeah <laughs> no the, the dan weston actually makes a much better a much better gun to start with uh and that's that's actually legit. They're a pretty good gun, pretty good gun out of the box. All right, so I got several questions. I'm going to jump in here. Let's hear it. All right. So, in case anyone that's listening doesn't really know, I want to talk about this first. Uh, if you go to Jeremy's uh, Instagram page, Reed Pistol Smithing, you you can see pictures of what he's talking about here. And one of the things that I've always seen um, 
you know, on these high end uh, 1911s is that, you, you know, you basically take the frame and where the grip safety would uh, interface with it, you weld that up and then reshape it. Mm -hmm. And that's how you get a seamless line. So when the grip, when the gun's sitting there and the, the grip, the grip safety is not depressed, it, it's, you know, that line is real seamless. Yeah. And for anyone that doesn't know what that looks like, you can go to that, uh, you know, Jeremy's page, but you just take yours out of, you take your Kimber or your, your Colt or whatever out of the, um, out of the safe and you can see some big gaps. And, and so that's just a level of detail um, on that one part that you go to. I mean, you do the barrel crown, however somebody wants it, you do the slide stops. And now the questions I have is, do you take the rails and weld those up and then recut those to get a tighter slide to frame fit? Do you, do you do the barrel, um, not the barrel lugs, but the um, wherever the link pin swings off of those feet, do you do all that? Basically, if you can quickly tell us what you all, what you do all to the gun. Yeah. So, so when I'm building a gun, uh, oftentimes I am starting with a Colt. So it's, it's kind of, it's already a gun, but I take it down to the frame and the slide and I basically replace every other part on the gun. Uh, and every part that I put in there, I mean, other than pins and stuff like that, every other part is an oversized part. And so it's getting all fit precisely. Uh, so kind of to, to run you through it real fast. Uh, I am, welding up the rails and refitting it now. I don't think, I don't find that super critical, but that's become kind of industry standard. And yeah. so, so I do do that. Uh, a tight slide to frame fit is cool. Uh, I don't think it's necessary for an accurate gun, but most guys expect that now. So right. yeah, I weld up the frame rails. I fit an oversized barrel. Uh, I try to get a zero tolerance fit between the lower lugs and the, the upper lugs on the barrel on the slide. Uh, so that once that goes up in the battery, it's everything's tight there. Uh, fit an oversized bushing so that gets fit to the slide uh, to a hand turn fit um, and then that also gets fit to the outside die in the barrel then yeah replace all the other parts uh, new slide stop new trigger bow new trigger uh, so that's fit tight to the frame new grip safety new trigger components with a trigger job uh, then reliability work through everything uh, usually the uh, the front strap and the back strap all need texture uh, so those get textured um, either with with uh, I do machine checkering in house, or I've got kind of a, I call it an ego pattern. Um, if you go on my Instagram page, you can kind of see what I'm talking about there, and that's really kind of my favorite, favorite pattern now. And then basically, I go through the gun and I make it as friendly to the shooter as possible. So that's where I go in with my high cut, my dehorn on the gun. Uh, I don't want the gun to ever hurt the uh, hurt the person shooting it. So my guns are pretty soft. Uh, you're not going to get cut up running into my guns uh, or anything like that. Um, they should feel feel comfortable and good. And then reliability is the the most important thing. So making sure they run and shoot well. Speaking on uh, reliability, I'm uh, guessing in your time you've handled a lot of different guns by a lot of different manufacturers. Uh, what is probably the most common issues you see with 1911s, 2011s, just from general manufacturing? Uh, I mean, they're usually... They're usually all a mess. Um, you know, the, the 1911 itself, the, the, the 1911 is, is, is really cool. And if, if everybody built the gun to the actual blueprint specs of it, they would all run fine and all the parts would be interchangeable. That's how the, the platform was designed. Uh, the challenge with the 1911 is now that the patent has run out on it, uh, you have 30, 40 different manufacturers of the gun and then that many more people making parts. And so 
where they fit on the blueprints, that's anybody's guess. Uh, some people just ignore the blueprints altogether. And so that's really kind of where you get into the issues with 1911s working or not working. Uh, it's because there's just so many people making them, whereas there's one person making Glocks. There's one person making, well, I guess Tanfo's kind of making a CZ, but there's one person making <laughs> the 75 right? Uh, and so it's really hard to say that there's just one issue, um, but it's pretty rare that the barrel's timed right. Uh, most, most extractors are going to clock in the gun, and that's going to that's gonna affect issues of feeding and extraction. Um, so the extractor plays a big role in that. And then the feed ramp, just on a 45, the feed ramps are often not cut deep enough and they're not smooth. And so that makes a, makes a pretty big issue in, in stuff. So what you're saying is polishing your feed ramp should be your first thing on any new gun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Take your Dremel out. Take and your Dremel, yeah. See, Flitz. Yep. Put a, put a polishing yeah. box. Your Dremel and just go to town. You mentioned uh, only one person making a CZ. It's uh, kind of a little off topic, but an uh, interesting thing is that is supposedly the second most copied platform after the 1911 in the world. There's actually yeah, lots of I manufacturers that copy yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. We just don't see well, very I mean, many of them in the U.S. Yeah. I mean, it's also a copy of a high power. So, I mean, that, it's an, it goes back. It, it, its origins date back to 1935. Yeah, I'm not sure how much of it copied from that. It's it feels a lot like one, but it's substantially different at the same time on the inside. Yeah, I mean it's a lot of different. Obviously, it's a single action trigger versus a versus a. Uh, what just happened? It, it freezes up a little bit. I think we're good. Oh, oh, we're still recording. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> no, we have to start over again. No, no, no. Great, great. <laughs> Uh, but no, I mean, yeah, so it's, I mean, the, the CZ 75 is a, is a great platform. Um, I would, I would put it on equal footing with the 1911 platform. Uh, same with the Glock. I think a Glock is a, is a great platform when it, when it first came out, uh, it was obviously, a a very good, very well engineered gun, um, equal to that of 1911. Actually the patent's out on the Glock now. And so you're starting to see, I know guys that are building Glocks without using a single part. You have that new uh, that Zev gun that's kind of like a chassis version of a Glock, and then uh, yeah, I saw I saw another one a while back. I don't remember who it was though. That looked like it was a copy of a Glock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it's pretty. I got uh, one of those. Uh, it was like the Glock store catalog in the mail the other door day, and uh, yeah, you could basically piece together a Glock with no Glock parts. Just out of the catalog. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Hey, I yeah, got another so well, question. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I got another question. I'm looking. I'm one thing I've always seen. I've seen a lot of the guys that do what you do do um, is the squaring off of a originally round trigger guard. Yeah. Is is there any way you could talk about that quickly? I mean, I know we don't want to spend too much time on that, but does that do you have to cut that and then reshape it and then weld it and then re? I mean, that just to some people don't probably probably are wondering like why I care. I think I just I like I have several 1911s and I just I like the the high end custom ones that you know that you guys make. I don't own any of them, but uh, I always thought that was cool how you take that round trigger guard and you make it a square trigger guard. Yeah, that became that became pretty popular uh, quite a while ago. I don't remember the 
first person to do it, but I, I want to say Armand Swenson might have been. Uh, it's tough to say who's ever first on something like that. So it was real popular uh, quite a while ago. And uh, obviously, Rob, maybe not obviously everybody, Rob Latham, is, he's always shot a square trigger guard. He, he wants one. And he's real specific in, in how it's done. Uh, and that, it's become a lot more popular here lately. I've started doing, doing more and more of them. Uh, people are requesting more of them. Uh, one way to do it is, is how you say. Uh, a lot of guys do it this way. You go in and you machine off the existing trigger guard, at least where it's both, both sections are, are pointing straight, and you just weld in a piece of metal that's already squared. Uh, that's, that's one way to do it. Um, your welding better be good, uh, or <laughs> especially if it's a glued gun or something like that. Uh, it's, it'll show up in the bluing if, if your weld's not good. Um, how I do it and, and how I've done how I've done my past one is is really kind of the old school way, and it's just I just heat it up with a torch and, and start bending it, and and just keep doing that over and over until it until it looks right, until it's square. Uh, and, and it's kind of you're kind of limited on that. Like you've got to have make sure that the uh, the trigger guards. Some trigger guards on, on some older Colts are real thin, and you once you started stretching it, you just run out of material. But most of the newer ones are, are, are a bit thicker, and so you've got plenty of material there to, to bend it and move it and get it kind of where you like in it without it getting too thin or breaking. Cool. Hmm. That's pretty cool. Yeah, Jason's a, a baller. He might, he might try to jump on that build list here pretty soon. <laughs> there you go. Hey, be careful selling Jason a gun, though. He'll decide to shoot a different division by the time you get started on it. <laughs> yeah. I shot carry optics all year this year. What are y'all talking about? Uh, no, the first match I shot with you, you shot open. And then you also shot carry optics. And carry optics. Yeah. <laughs> but they're not they're not wrong. I, I, think, uh, I think we should uh, get into your shooting a little bit, because besides being a uh, fairly well-known pistol smith, you're also a... Uh, a pretty solid uh, single-stack shooter amongst other divisions. So uh, how about a little bit of history, uh, how you found uh, USPSA or practical shooting, and then uh, you know, kind of give us a brief run-through to where we're at today. Yeah, I'll try to make it as short as possible. Uh, I was – about the time I started working on guns, I was working at Gander Mountain at the time. Uh, I just hit the gun counter, and some guy came in and – started talking about this USPSA thing and I, I had always wanted to get into competitive shooting. I just didn't know, I didn't know it was accessible or available to me. Uh, so he starts talking about USPSA and they, there's a club that was, I was living in Lubbock, Texas at the time, about 45 minutes away. Uh, and they had a kind of an intro class, intro match, uh, there within a couple months. And so I went out to that and I was, I was hooked. I was ready to do it right away. Um, and, you know, it was a pretty small club, probably 15 people, uh, but there were like three GMs and two master shooters all within that club, one of them being a, a top 10 guy. Um, he was a member of the – Kel Garrettson was his name, was a member of the 2014 production world shoot team. Uh, so there was a lot, of, a lot of really good shooters at that club for as small as it was. Um, so kind of gave me a good start uh, into the sport, uh, and I was able to train a lot with Kale early on uh, another guy named Jim Bodkin who, who has done a lot of work on Tanfo guns in the past. Um, and, uh, he's, he's still a really good friend of mine. Actually, he's my neighbor now. Uh, but 
you know, those, those guys, you know, having a couple of GMs, they were production shooters, having a couple of GMs to, uh, to work with and train with, kind of get me off on the right foot early, early was a big help. Uh, my progression, people are used kind of interested in the classification system. Uh, I, I don't remember when I made GM. I didn't, that wasn't really a big priority for me. I only shot probably four or five, six classifiers a year. And so it's kind of, that's kind of tough to move up, move up through the classification system that way. Um, but that was never all that important. Uh, really trying to compete with the top guys was always my, always my biggest goal. Um, so I didn't really care much about the classification. Uh, so, so I started shooting nationals within a couple of years of uh, getting into the sport. Um, I think I made top 16 in L10 nationals my first year out there. That was when the <laughs> nationals were still in Vegas. Uh, but it was, it was limited 10, so I'm not sure if there were more than like 30 shooters. So, you know, the top 16 didn't mean a whole lot. Uh, but uh, been trying to shoot as many nationals as I could ever since then. So, uh, you've, you've primarily shot single stacks since you started, correct? And, and then doing some casual competing in uh, like limited or L10 at nationals? Yeah, yeah. The only time I ever shoot L10 is is just for nationals. You know, if it's a deal like this last year, they had L10 before the single stack match. So okay, I'll show up and I'll shoot my single stack gun. Uh, I can get a match in without having to pay pay double the travel expenses and shoot the same gun. Uh, so that's that's pretty much the only time I ever shoot L10. Limited, I I really enjoy limited. Uh, it's it's a it, obviously, it transitions really well from from 1911s to a to a 2011 gun, and so I shoot limited quite a bit as well. Uh, I just I enjoy single stack. I would love there to be more good shooters shooting single stack. Uh, really on Jeff and making sure he stays in it, doesn't go to. Nobody's gonna want you to shoot a stinking tanfo and open Jeff. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> it's almost like shooting a rock and open. Um, he's right but, uh, you know I, I would so like if I want more more solid shooters to, to shoot single stack then I kind of feel like I need to shoot single stack as often as possible uh, so that's kind of that's kind of why I stay in it I uh, the the other beauty of single stack is I feel like the uh, the scores are pretty much even with uh, production you know especially if I'm shooting single stack minor uh, if you're shooting a uh, shadow two and I'm shooting my minor gun, we're competing straight up. There's, there's no competitive advantage or disadvantage. Uh, I would, I would still rather so, load a single stack though over a production gun. I think a single stack loads easier. Uh, I, I would probably disagree with that. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, I think that's kind of a moot point if you spend much time in dry fire. Uh, I think Ben's not Ben's mm. not giving anything to the single stack shooters on his on his reloads. Yeah, yeah. So that I, I at least have that. You know, if if we can compare across divisions, and I show up to a match, and there's at least a good production shooter, uh, I can at least compare results across that. Hey, real quick, Jeff, didn't somebody bring this up to you like on the last one of the last podcasts and say the exact same thing? I think it was me, maybe. Anyways, go ahead. I'm sorry, Jeremy. I, was, I don't know if it was. I don't know if it was a personal conversation I was having with uh, Jeff, but I was telling him I was like, "Look, dude, exactly what you just said." Because you know, there's no heat at the local, at the uh, the more regional or more local major matches. You know, the state matches. There's yeah. two yeah. guys 
that may show up that you're yeah or maybe one and yeah. uh, there's are you, jeremy yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's so, jeremy it's a you know trying to trying to look for local heat in a specific division a lot unless you live somewhere like really special like uh close to rio or something yeah uh, you, you're not going to have it because i mean even look at kansas city like matt is extremely talented a very good production shooter uh but outside of matt if if i choose to shoot production he's that's the only division where i have someone that's like truly just at that top level otherwise you know, it's a couple of M's, maybe a, an older GM that doesn't shoot a lot anymore, it spread out to divisions. It's going to be the same way over around Oklahoma. I mean, Jeff's kind of, if he shoots single stack or production or something, there's some other like M guys, but there's not, outside of Mike in your area, there's not really anyone that's like a top level GM. Oh, I guess uh, Ian in, uh, in PCC, if you want to shoot a rifle. I don't. Uh, for sure i mean at the at the local level it doesn't matter what division you're if you're if you're a a good shooter you're probably the you're most best likely shooter. Best shooter in that division yeah. uh, it's pretty rare that you have a club that has has a lot of good shooters that just doesn't happen that often um and even at the small sectional matches you, you can even go to sectional matches and shoot production and there's there normally be, you know there's, there's usually a good shooter but not always um, There's normally two or three guys that can win the division in, yeah. in production, limited, or open. Right. Um, so, yeah, so I, that's kind of why I stay in single stack is to try to keep the division a little bit. If I can bring any sort of legitimacy to it, uh, then then I think that's a good thing. And I just – I honestly, I enjoy it more than shooting limited. Even though it is, as fun as limited is, I enjoy single stack, uh, the gun manipulations that are required um, – figuring out stages to eight rounds, um, kind of the stress that having eight rounds in the gun brings. Uh, I kind of enjoy that a little bit more. So uh, you've also uh, participated in some very high-level uh, USPSA, uh, outside of USPSA, very high-level IPSC matches as well, right? Uh, what all world shoots have you participated in? Uh, yeah, so I've shot the 2014 world shoot. I was able to shoot that just as an individual. Uh, I just was was fortunate to get a slot. That was the one that was in Florida. Um, shot an okay match. Uh, I ended up sixth there in Classic Division. That was the first year that they had Classic. Uh, and then the 2017 World Shoot in France, I was on the, the U.S. team for that one. Uh, and we, the team won gold, which was, which was really cool. And then uh, I was fifth place at that. Uh, I think Phil Strader beat me by like a half a point. I shot a Delta my last... My last target of the match, I shot a Delta on a swinger, and I did the math. If I had made it up, even if I had taken the time and made it up and shot a Charlie, I would have beat Phil. I knew it was a Delta, but I knew it was on target, so I didn't make it up, and uh, apparently I should have. But wait, you were shooting uh, Major. You don't. It's just get him on Brown, man. What are you talking about? No, that one I was shooting Minor at. Oh, well, see, there yeah. you go. Yeah, that was uh, that was a bit of a uh, major was probably better at that match, um, but it was kind of a deal that I was flying and I was flying with ammo, and so in order to be able to easily get enough ammo over there for the match, uh, I kind of made the decision that that minor would be the way to go, uh, and a lot of Ipsic shooters shoot minor, um, and so I mm-hmm. I just kind of made that decision ahead of time. It's really kind of hard on world shoots. You have to. Single stack, none of the other divisions does it really come into play, but in single stack, it really is a debate whether you're going to shoot major or minor. Um, 
and some matches, some matches minors better, especially in Ipswich with their three-two-one and their short courses. If they have a bunch of ten-round short courses, shoot minor, you don't have to reload. Shoot major, you have a you have a forced reload, so that can be can be a big deal. Um, but in the world shoot, you have to make travel plans so far ahead of time that it, you kind of just have to make a decision and stick with it. And so I had made the decision to shoot minor, and so I just kind of stuck with it for that match. You uh, also will be participating in the uh, 2020 World Shoot on the U.S. team, if I'm not mistaken? Correct. I was, uh, we just finished our last qualifier match with uh, Single Stack Nationals here a couple weeks ago, and uh, I was able to place well enough. You had to be in the top four points-wise, and I, so I think our teams, I think if the math is right, uh, it's Elias Frangoulis, the, he won the last World Shoot, myself, John McClain, and Randy Arrowwood. So it uh, should be a fun should be a fun group of guys to shoot with. Yeah. So primarily in uh, USPSA for single stack, you shoot forty five or forty when you're shooting major. Uh, last year I switched to forty. Um, I had I had shot forty five up until then, um, but last year I went ahead. And I need I was at the point I needed to build an, a new gun. Uh, once you get about a hundred thousand rounds on a gun shooting major, that's usually usually when they're pretty tired, uh, and so I kind of that's usually about the time that I want to get want to start getting a new one. And so I just made the decision to go ahead and build a forty. That way, my my ammo for for limited and single stack would all just be the same, and I'm only loading two calibers now, forty and nine millimeter. Yeah. So. Uh... When it comes to your training, can you give us a uh, kind of a brief over, uh, overview of what a, uh, a year of your training is like? Like, when do you start your season? Um, how do you approach practice? How much dry fire? That type of thing. Yeah, so uh, living in Texas and the part of Texas that I do, uh, we do get we do get a winter, and so it does get pretty cold and miserable where I'm at. And so I, I take a an off season, usually a couple months in the winter time. Um, at least without going to the to the range, and so usually about end of February, first of March, I start really wanting to start training. So at that point, it's basically if it's a nice day, then I'm gonna I'm gonna try and hit the range. Uh, at that point, usually it's maybe only a couple of days a week, or maybe we'll have a, a week of nice days and a couple of weeks of of bad days. And then as as the weather gets better, uh, I will I'll try and, and hit the range as as much as I possibly can. Uh, I'm I'm lucky enough that a range is I've got one 600 yards from my house, so I can kind of go hit it. If I've got a free hour, I can go and go and shoot. Uh, so that that really, especially with my job uh, being self-employed, um, makes it a lot more convenient for me to be able to train quite a bit. Um, so this this last year, I'm sure this will come up. Uh, I added up my rounds because I knew you were guys going to ask. I shot about fifty thousand rounds um, this last year. My plan was actually to try and shoot more than that, but that's kind of what it just ended up. Um, it you know, takes this, a lot of time to shoot that many rounds. It really does, um, you know. And, and this year, I, I I've I've tried in the past uh, to kind of have some some heavy training weeks, you know, where you're going to shoot four or five thousand rounds in a in a single week. And that just wasn't, I've got a, I, I had a, a kid last year. And so that, uh, well, I didn't have it. My wife had a kid, um, but, uh, 
you know, so that kind of that kind of made that not not as easy. So I didn't didn't really have anything big like that. Um, but I, I was fortunate in this year, you know, as far as just what the individual practice looks like. I, I really tried to never have a set amount of rounds I was going to shoot. I was going to bring his, a full bag of ammo and I was just going to shoot till I quit. Uh, and so that, that usually kind of ends up being 300 to on a long day, maybe 400 rounds. If I'm, if I really had the time that day. Uh, so a typical practice session for me is, is around that 300 to 400 range. Um, and I really kind of have gotten away from any sort of specific drills. Uh, if you, if you get front side, if you follow uh, the, the Ben Steger Pro Shop, I kind of wrote an article uh, for that kind of detailing a little bit how I practice, but I really kind of got into what I call a random practice. And I think this, this works really well for, uh, especially after you have a, a certain skill set, a, a decent skill set to where, where you're not necessarily having to work on, on gun manipulations and things like that. Um, at some point, you've got to figure out that when you're shooting a gun, it's all the same. You, you've got to line up the sights and pull the trigger uh, without moving those sights. Everything, you're else, everything else you're doing is just a distraction from that. And so setting up a, a drill and working on a specific drill for 300 rounds, um, I don't see a whole lot of development through that. Uh, whereas I think the more that you can get used to just applying solid fundamentals um, across the board, uh, that, that tends to work out and you tend to develop a lot more consistency that way. And so what I'll, I typically do is I'll go set up and I'll set up uh, five to seven paper targets and, you know, three or four pieces of steel and, and maybe some fault lines or a wall or something if I have it. And I'll, I'll come up with a stage or a drill and I'll shoot it. I'll shoot it two times usually. And I, I kind of think the second time is important just to verify that the first time you shoot through it. Uh, that you weren't too slow or too conservative or anything like that. And then I'll change it up. Uh, that may be move targets or that may just mean changing uh, uh, the shooting order, the positions where you shoot stuff. And I just kind of constantly work through my, my training practice that way, um, just kind of constantly changing up and just trying to work on the fundamentals. Um, now, I will admit within that, uh, I will stop and do a, what I call a micro drill. Uh, that could be the doubles drill, Juanchik's doubles drill, um, or even if there's, you know, just a, a far partial with a close paper that you're transitioning off of and trying to work on that, you know, three or four rounds, and you kind of need to work on just that specific thing for, for a couple of mags. I will stop and do that, but then I go on and, and, and then go on to a, a different stage or, or drill or whatever you want to call it. So it, it sounds like much of your practice then is, is purely focused on building consistency in your, your stage execution skills. Then. Would that be uh, fair to say? Uh, yeah, for the most part. Uh, that's, that's kind of – I think, once you're, I think you're, you're, what you're trying to train in that is your body getting used to doing different stuff, and that's the normal. Um, whereas if you just train one drill, your body gets doing it that, and then you go to a match and – yeah, you may see that one that one drill maybe kind of a specific array in a target, but then you're being asked to do a whole bunch of different things all the time, and that's that's not normal for your body to do. Whereas if you're doing training as random practices, I'll call it, your body gets more used to just doing different stuff all the time, and and that's kind of it's normal. And so so it helps a lot with stage breakdown uh, and and coming up with stage plans, 
Um, I don't I don't feel that I need to spend near as much time kind of burning a plan in all the time because I'm so used to to changing my plans. Uh, it's pretty rare that I will that I will if I come if whenever I'm changing the the stages all the time. It's pretty rare that I actually walk it. Um, I will just I'll kind of mentally go through. Okay, I'm going to shoot this target here, and then I'll shoot those over there, and then I'm going to move over there, do a mag change, and shoot these from there. And I'll mentally kind of think about it a, a couple of two or three times, and then I just go run it. And it's actually pretty rare that I have like a, a hesitation or an issue where I don't remember where I'm going, uh, just because my body's pretty well used to. I'm used to doing that all the time, so that's pretty normal for me. I got a comment on that. Yeah. So. Uh, Jeremy and I hung out quite a bit at Nationals and uh, I had a terrible first day and but after that like we talked that night and Jeremy kind of told me about his like uh, his like stage planning I guess and kind of like what he just said like uh, he like runs through it and then he like thinks about it a couple times and then he just kind of kind of zones out until it's his turn to shoot and then he just goes and does it and so up until this point, uh, or up until that point, I guess, I had always been uh, of the religion that you basically burn that sucker in every second until you get up to shoot. And I've I just been, uh, like all year, I've been making stupid mental mistakes doing that. Like burn it in over and over and over, thinking, well, if I just burn it in more, I'll quit messing up had that conversation the next day i did that which i didn't think about it until after that but like that's what i do at club matches you know because there's no yeah. stress so i'm just like oh this is what i'm gonna do and then i just get up there when it's my turn and i shoot and i freaking kill it uh so that's what i did second day of nationals i shot way better way better just like this is my plan think about it a couple times i get up there just do it if i just like didn't think about it over and over and over and stress about it i shot way better which i thought was really interesting i don't know why but it worked it worked for me not even having practiced it like jeremy does uh but yeah just just a kind of a different way of thinking different mindset and it definitely changed things like I'm probably gonna do that going forward. Hey, real yeah. quick, real quick. I'm sorry. Um, on my end, I I got a lot of cut out of the video and audio uh, when Jeff started talking about what Jeremy told what you talked what you guys talked about the, that night after the first day. How he does things. I didn't hear any of that. Did anybody else get that cut out? I had it all. Okay, I just want to make sure it's on it's on the episode. So, okay continue yeah so that, that kind of goes into uh i guess we can kind of you guys i assume this question is probably going to come uh like how do you how do you prep for a nationals um because really for me the whole year leads up into nationals or if it's a world shoot year the whole year is leading to the world shoot um any other major that i shoot is honestly just practice for the big matches uh it's just i i want to shoot those matches just because i want to shoot under stress um that's that's really my biggest reason to go to them and and you get to hang out with with cool people like matt hopkins uh, and and then you got to hang out with with sasquatch too but you know at least, at least you got other cool people to hang out with. Uh, 
but so so my my whole approach and this is kind of this has kind of been evolving here in the in the past the past year is is I want to I want to train in a way that I gain as much confidence as possible for the match and then I also want to prepare in a way that I reduce anything that causes anxiety I want to reduce that as much as possible hold on one second let me my laptop is about to die so I'm just plugging it <laughs> yeah take two ran a little longer than expected Hey, okay, I got go. I got take one. It it's it it's saved over there in the chat. You see it? No, but a little late now. This one's way better anyway. Uh, yeah. So anyway, so I want to do I want to do everything I can that can build confidence uh, coming into the nationals and then reduce reduce anxiety. Anything that that causes me any sort of anxiety, I want to get rid. I want to take get that get rid of that. Um, so for me this year, that's. I've loaded match ammo like at the beginning of the year. I just loaded a whole bunch of match ammo, got it all case gauged. So leading up to a match, I already had the ammo all done. Rather than doing that, where in the past I would often do that the night before. Uh, you know, training-wise, uh, you know, in the past before a big match, I would train really hard the week of. And oftentimes, I mean, for me, training because I'm I'm always trying to push to get better, and so that would kind of maybe cause stress. Uh, and so this year, I've really tried to. Maybe train hard a couple weeks out, and then the week of a big match, just kind of coast and just try to go out to the range a little bit, shoot, shoot a little bit, uh, get your confidence enough that you feel confident, and then call it call it a good for the day. Um, but then you get in the anxiety part of it, and you get to the match, um, and so you know I I kind of found you know like the first day that Jared was there, I mean that uh, that Jeff was there for the single stack match. You know, we were staying in the same house, but they left like an hour, maybe two hours earlier than I did for the for the match. Well, I was going frostproof. I knew how to get there. I knew where my stage was. Uh, I knew the traffic wasn't going to be bad. And so if I get to the range and I sit there for an hour and a half, I'm just getting amped up and the anxiety is just the longer I'm on the range, the more the anxiety is going up. So I don't want to spend any more time at the range uh, than I have to. And so I try to leave where I feel comfortable. I don't have to drive fast to get there, and I'll, I'll be there in plenty of time, but I'm not on the range a lot. Uh, and I also found, as, as Jeff was talking about, with, with stage plans and doing all these mental reps uh, on a stage, I found myself that in the past, if I was doing it um, like a lot of guys prescribe to and that you burn it in just time, 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 and time again, um, that that was making me more nervous. Uh, that, was, that was my anxiety was kind of going up. And so by the time you step to the line, you're, you're kind of too worried about some of the little details. Um, and so I've kind of found that I'm really just kind of better off. Okay. Once you know the plan, uh, call it good and then just figure out, okay, what do I need to do with the trigger for me? For me, it's, it's usually kind of boils down to what I'm doing with the trigger, uh, and, and put all my focus into that, uh, and not worry too much about the stage plan. And that seems to have has helped quite a bit. Uh, for myself this year. All right. So, what about uh, on the training side of things? So, dry fire. Do you uh, do a lot of dry fire? No dry fire. How do you approach that? Uh, typically, in the past, uh, I would dry fire a lot. Um, it was it was an everyday thing. Um, I can I come from the world of of well, I have I have two degrees in in trumpet performance, music performance. And so coming from that world, uh, training, preparing was something that was just innate, uh, that I was going to be the most prepared person at all the time. 
and really kind of brought that into into shooting and and that was definitely the case with dry fire and i think that's pretty important when you're two three years in you're pretty early on like you're dry fire you're still building skills you're still building that sort of stuff um like i said i've got a i've got a kid now and so dry fire for me was kind of the the one thing that kind of took the took a back seat this year uh, while I, I would dry fire, it was typically on days that I didn't live fire. If I, if I did live fire, I wouldn't dry fire those days. And then usually, actually the week of a big match, that was really when, kind of when I would actually dry fire more. And just especially with single stack, get those reloads feeling a little bit more comfortable, getting the draws a little bit more consistent. Um, so this year I dry fired way less than I, than I ever have. Um, but that was just kind of, that was kind of sacrifice I had to give up uh, with life a little bit this year. I see Jeff laughing. I think it's because he has had a kid and he's going through the same thing. <laughs> that's yeah, not Jeff, why he's laughing. That's not why I'm laughing, but that is true. That is very yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and honestly, for me, uh, dry fire is a gun manipulation practice for me. Um, it's especially shooting single stack, it's draws, it's reloads, being comfortable with that. Um, I've been in the sport long enough that whenever I go to dry fire, I'm not necessarily learning how to reload the gun again. I kind of know how to do it. And it's just, it's doing it enough to make sure that I'm getting that mag straight into the gun. And that, that usually kind of comes a little bit quicker now than it used to. Uh, it doesn't quite take as much work. And so that's kind of always been my approach to, to dry fire. It's really more of a gun manipulation thing than, than a, a shooting skills builder. Um, so that's just kind of how I've approached it. Yeah. All right, so, any uh, listener questions this week? Well, we did have one that I wanted to ask, but he covered it. So, um, it was actually a question from Joel, and uh, I felt like you kind of covered all the stuff. He had a he had a question about. Um, like to hear about how Jeremy handles pressure at matches and if he has any system he uses, which I felt like you've discussed. And then what's your training schedule? Drill, scenario, live, dryer, and live, dry. You've discussed that too, so it just worked out. Uh, do you shoot club matches? Uh, yeah. Um, I run a club match. Uh, it's it's here. We have it in the, the range that's that I shoot at. Um kind of interesting we only have two bays uh so we've got basically two 50 yard by 50 yard bays and so we'll run a six stage six stage match in that we'll kind of put three in one and three in the other and uh the bays are big enough that usually we can have two unique unique completely unique stages in a bay and then the third one is usually we'll we'll take a short course and we'll just kind of include four or five targets from a, a big field course and make that a short course um so we kind of shoot that as as my if I've got a major match that weekend, then then we're not having it. Uh, and if the weather's terrible, then we won't have it then either. Uh, so that usually kind of ends up being, you know, six or seven six or seven matches a year. Yeah. And I enjoy it. Uh, locals are for me kind of interesting because I actually feel a lot of people say they don't feel any pressure at locals. I actually feel quite a bit of pressure at locals um, because it, it feels like. Uh, you know, when I, whenever I come to the line at a local, everybody's expecting something really cool. Uh, everybody everybody kind of stops and watches, right? And so 
actually, I feel a lot, a lot more pressure at locals often than I do just kind of your normal major outside of nationals, uh, just because everybody's kind of expecting something cool. Whereas at a major match, I'm still pretty anonymous and nobody knows who I am. Uh, I, so I saw Phil Strader. He was watching you really close every time you stepped up to shoot. Yeah. <laughs> I got uh, I got one more question that might take a few minutes. So y'all got anything sure. else? I've got the two questions that I've been asking everybody that I'm going to ask when either at yeah. the end or I'm going to ask them yeah. now. Oh, yeah. You wait. You ask those okay. last. Okay. You wait your turn. Okay, hold on. Let me find it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, okay, so this is something that we talked about in Florida because you, me, and Juanzik talked about it, and you and Juanzik, and pretty much you and uh, most other people in the sport, I think, have a different perspective on this. Uh, so, your like match day pace basically, it's like, huh? do you push yourself at matches? You know, because a lot of people are saying, uh, you push in practice, and then you back it off 20% or whatever. And Kwanzaa has a much more scientific uh, perspective on that. But yeah. uh, but yours was was very different, and uh, I also liked it. So can you talk, kind of talk about you know, like uh, what gear you're in on uh, major match day, basically? Yeah, so that's kind of been a, a, an adjustment that I've made really this year. Um, in past performances at nationals, um, I've done okay, uh, but my time was always much slower um, than than the guys at the very top, and it, and it was like that for several years. Uh, and you could find various reasons for that, but but this year I really had to make a concerted effort. Like I've got to be faster. And part of the issue was is that whenever I got to nationals, I was I was hearing guys like Ben talk about, hey, I'm just kind of I'm backing off, I'm shooting conservative, I'm just trying not to mess up. Um, the problem is, is that if you do that and you're not like Ben and you like Ben can do that and make zero mistakes. And so his times are still good and his hits are really good. And he wins eight out of the last nine, I think, uh, production nationals. And that, that works for him. The problem for me was that whenever I backed off it, one, it meant I was shooting with less confidence, uh, but also it took away any sort of margin for error that I had. So any sort of mistake, I was already going to be a second slower. And then if I had a miss on steel, well, now I'm two seconds slower. If I had two misses on steel or a fumbled reload, now I'm three seconds slower. Uh, and so it, by shooting more conservatively, I was, I was giving myself no room for error. Um, and so this year I really kind of came into the – I've approached the match with, hey, I'm going to use the term send it. Uh, that's, that's kind of a, a Casey Reed term. And if you, if you had seen Casey Reed shoot L10 Nationals um, – the guy shot better than anybody at that match. Uh, he just he had a front sight break off on the stage and, and then had a rear sight break off on another stage later. Um, otherwise, he absolutely crushed it. And that, that was his motto. He was, he was sending it on every stage. And I think what that does for you, one, it forces you to shoot confidently, um, that maybe you're not feeling confident, but I'm going to go after it. Uh, because typically, shooting conservative doesn't mean better hits, uh, and it usually doesn't mean that you move well. Um, at least for me, it doesn't. And so this year, I really kind of took the approach: is I'm going to be, I'm going to be aggressive, and I'm going to, I'm going to try to shoot at my best level every time. Uh, and if I crash and burn, I crash and burn. Um, but I would rather, I would rather do that shooting aggressively than not. 
And this year there was a, there was one stage that was a really pretty good example of it. It was on our last day. Uh, I shot the stage and I, I shot it really well. Um, being able to shoot on the super squad this year, I kind of knew everybody else's times. I had the fastest time by far. Um, and I ended up, I did have a mic on the stage, uh, which was, was really unfortunate, but that I went from without the mic, I would have won the stage by 10%. But even with the mic, I was still 92% on the stage. Um, so whereas in the past, if I had a mic, I'd be more like 75% on stage just because I couldn't afford the points down. Um, but by being aggressive and shooting, shooting aggressive and shooting quickly, even with a miss, uh, my, my score was still decent. Uh, it didn't hurt me so much. And, and this, is, this is kind of the first year at Nationals that, that my time was, was pretty competitive with pretty much everybody except Nils. Uh, Nils was just lights out. I've never, I haven't, the, the, his match was just incredible. Uh, he, he shot phenomenally. Does that, does that, does that kind of answer your question, Jeff? No, yeah, that was exactly it. Yeah. I thought, uh, that's just very different. I really liked it. Uh, yeah. I like that. I really liked the, uh, you know, if you, if you back off that little bit and you're going to say, okay, I'm going to shoot safe. It's like you said, you're, you're taking out, uh, like if you have an error, well, now you're, you backed off twice as much, basically. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, if you just, I don't know, it's, it's an interesting thing uh, to think about or to, to try. Uh, I don't think everybody can shoot that way, but I do think it's a good idea to try, and I like it. Yeah, in our sport, like it's honestly, it's not that hard to shoot the same points as the guys winning. Um, you can be you can be C and B class and still shoot the same A count as them. Um, it's hard to shoot the same pace that they do, uh, in, in my opinion. Um, that, that's that's the hardest thing. And so, at some point, if you if you see a guy do something at nationals and you see him shoot fast, a certain speed, well, if that's a guy that you want to compete with, you're going to have to shoot that fast because they're shooting that fast and getting good points. Uh, so you can't just lay back and say, okay, I'm just going to shoot good points. I'll be able to compete with them. Well, no, that probably won't work. At some point, you're going to have to shoot the same pace that they are. Uh, and so I, I think for me, it was just a point. It's like, okay, I've tried being conservative for quite a while, and that really hasn't, that really hasn't paid dividends for me. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot that pace, and, and just if mistakes happen, they happen. Uh, so so what? Would you say that when you're saying with what you're saying is you're not, um, I mean you're you're sending it, that full send kind of thing. I mean you're going, you're you're at max capacity, max speed. Um, you, so you haven't decided I'm going to dial it back five percent. You're going no, no, no. I'm doing everything as fast as I can, and I'm in a hurry. I'm, that's I don't know. Maybe that's the best way to say it. I'm I'm just in a hurry on everything. Um, uh, yeah, pretty well. Um, it's not. Like, so it's not necessarily shooting out of control, um, right. but it's, but it's giving it's, it's max effort. So yeah. like in practice, uh, in practice for me, uh, I, I kind of determine my splits on basically every yard gets a, uh, a hundredth of a second. So a 25 yard target, open target, we're talking open targets here, a 25 yard open target in practice, I kind of expect 25 to 30 splits. On. Um, I'm not going to do that at, at a match like so if that's if that's full if that's like i'm not because because misses are, are quite 
are quite possible at that speed. Um, so it's not necessarily that you're just shooting out of control, um, but you know that that full send where you're you're moving 100% aggressively, uh, you're you're just not timid on any target. You're you're saying no, I'm gonna I'm gonna aim for the A zone, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be as aggressive as I possibly can um, within my fundamentals on this on this target. If that yeah. makes sense, uh, it's not it's not really it's not necessarily out of control, um, but it's it's still maximum effort. I find the hard thing to uh, this is. I've been shooting for this was my second year or third year. I don't remember. Anyways, um, so for me, I'm still trying to figure some of this stuff out. And I talk to people, and you know, it's that old thing where people say, slow down and get your hits. And to me, I thought that made sense when I first started shooting, slow down and get your hits, you know. And I don't think that's what you're saying uh, as far as uh, pulling back a little bit or shooting conservative a little bit. But what happens is people end up doing the same errors. They just do everything slower. They still yank the trigger. They still don't aim for the right spot. And yeah. so they have all the same problems. They just have a longer stage time when they do that. Yeah. Um, so you're, you know, it, it, it's hard to, I, I feel that it's hard sometimes to talk about these things and get your point across and have someone or, and or understand someone else's point um, until you just get out there and try it <laughs> essentially. Yeah. yeah so, so for me, uh, like I said, I'm not I'm not Ben, uh, I'm definitely not Nils or, or any of those guys. But so I'm shooting at a pace that mistakes are possible if I mess up. It, like that that kind of sounds weird, but if I don't execute the fundamentals correctly, then I'm probably going to get punished for it. Uh, where otherwise, you know, the, the other options that you shoot real conservative, and even if you you're shooting so slow that even if you don't pull the trigger quite right or something that that you're still that you're still safe so to speak um and i, I don't think that's a good approach to to, to winning matches um uh, at least for me uh you know there's there are guys out there that yeah maybe they can shoot at 90 percent and still win i'm not one of those guys uh if i'm if i'm gonna if i'm gonna win a nationals or i'm gonna i'm gonna get in that top five that 95 percent or above at nationals then I'm going to have to have a really good match, and I'm going to have to be aggressive. Full send. So, uh, so to recap here, we got less dry fire, uh, less yeah. less visualization, and full send. <laughs> That's what we're looking for. Yeah. What is it, Cody? What is it, Cody and Joel say? Don't, don't shoot like a coward. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so for me, like a, a really good indicator for, for me at, at a stage is, uh, is how I draw the gun. You know, uh, I'm not real big on, on having a super fast draw. I don't care about a sub-second draw. Like, I, I guess I can hit them, but I don't think I, I, don't think I had – maybe I had two sub-second draws in practice this entire year total. I think you can win a Nationals with a 1-3 draw, never be faster than a 1-3 draw, maybe even 1-5, and I think you can still win Nationals. Um, but uh, my approach to my draw in the past has kind of been, okay, just make sure you get a good grip on the gun. Don't go too hard at it. Just make sure you get a good grip on the gun. Um, this year, it's more of, no, go after the draw. Go after the gun hard. And that kind of sets my pace for the whole stage is that I'm going to be aggressive on this whole stage. Yeah. Mm. Good stuff. Jason, uh, I thought you – oh, sorry. Two, two questions. Uh, I've been asking these to everybody we've had on. I don't know if I'm going to do it all the time, but uh, I'm going to do it now. Does gear well, matter? Before you ask your first question, 
I've got a question for Jared. Yes. <laughs> hey, so can you sing? No. <laughs> Why not? I don't know. <laughs> Why can't you sing really well? Uh, probably because I never worked at it. So you, you think if you worked at it really hard, like you could go win, like you could like be a professional singer? Mm, professional, no. Be good, probably. Why not professional? But I get where you're trying to go with this. <laughs> and the the issue there is, is you're, you're talking a, a physical trait that is uncontrollable as far as it's the same... It'd be the same as saying, uh, you know, you're you're only four foot eleven. Why can't you dunk the basketball? It, it is a physical trait that is uncontrollable. There is your physical traits when it comes to shooting and natural talent. Which, sorry, I'm stealing your other question. Yeah, uh, I'm like, where's this coming from? I don't even know why your, this. Your natural, your natural talent is <laughs> whatever. What everyone's referring to as natural talent is they're, they're meaning like the ability to shoot. There is nothing natural about shooting a gun. Um, something like that is calling on physical traits, but it still takes a ton of work. There's some people that have the proper physical traits to be better at it, but that does not make it natural talent. There's you don't naturally come out of the womb know how to sing. Did you? Were you naturally talented at playing the trombone or whatever instrument? So you work really Jason, hard. At it? Hey Jason, go ahead and ask your question now. Well, okay, first question was: Does gear matter? I mean, yeah, sorta. Like, <laughs> you need you need reliable you need reliable equipment and it needs outside to be of reliable, outside yeah. of reliable, is a. Uh, uh, am I? Are you going to be able to shoot better? And I'm asking probably the wrong person here with one of your <laughs> high end high end builds than you would with a Kimber that runs. <laughs> uh, so, I I think the honestly to me the the equipment deal comes down to is. Like I said, is the gun reliable uh, and is it is it decently accurate? Uh, accuracy accuracy does matter. Um, and at that point, it's really a matter, do you like the equipment that you have? Uh, if, if you like what you have, then run with it. Um, if, if you don't like it, then yeah, you're probably going to end up looking for something else. Um, so I think, it, I think it matters to the point of, of do you like your equipment? After that, it's we got guys winning winning nationals with with Glocks uh, in limited. Um, you know, Nils is doing what he's doing with a Canik, and Juanchik's doing it with a with a uh, Walter. Uh, you know, there, there's too many there's too many examples of pe people doing doing really impressive things with various platforms. Um, so maybe that answers. No, that's. I just like to hear what people say. Um, and then the next question, which was whatever y'all were just talking about, uh, essentially is: Is natural talent a real thing? Is does it exist? Is there a such thing as natural talent? Yeah, there's. So, uh, I mean, maybe Jared's definition of talent. Maybe maybe this is where he gets his his definition of talent. Maybe different than mine. Um, but if you spend any time around any sort of skill based. Uh, endeavor it's denying that somebody has more talent or less talent than somebody else is almost just simple ignorance um, i never said they had more or less no i said it wasn't natural 
so okay so now we're getting kind of a, a nature versus nurture thing um and yeah that would be a good way to look at it yeah so uh like so if if we go back to the the musical side of it i actually am not a very gifted musician um i have pretty good eye-hand coordination and so that that played well and i worked really hard at it um there were there were guys that put in less than half the effort, not even a quarter of the effort that I did, and they were better than me uh, because they were just naturally more gifted at it. And and I will say, making your lips vibrate into a piece of metal that then projects the sound, that's not natural in any sort of way, any more than pulling a trigger is natural. Um, but they were naturally gifted at it. Uh, just, I think, I think absolutely, it's, it's kind of hard to deny um, that certain people are just more naturally gifted at something than somebody else is. I would say, I, see, I view it as they have the ability to learn, or maybe they learn easier or get it quicker off of less effort, but it's not, it's not a natural ability. You don't know how to do it from the get-go. Like, it's not like you, you know, uh, an NBA player doesn't, like, walk out on the uh, JV team when he gets into high school, and all of a sudden he's at an NBA level. He works really hard at it. He might have attributes that allow him to get better at it than everyone else, like being six four or five or still dunk the ball or something. But it's the amount of work that goes in. If he didn't, if he didn't ever work at it, he's not just going to instantly be good at it. And shooting's the same way. Okay, then what separates uh, somebody like Michael Jordan and somebody else who's also six six and put the same amount of time in that he did? I would almost bet you money. Someone at Michael Jordan's level and somebody else that's just in the NBA is probably their level of mental toughness. And I believe that uh, Michael Jordan was probably, I'm not a big basketball fan, so, but I, I imagine he was probably able to elevate the players around him to play better. He was probably a very good leader, which played a huge part in his success. So, Jeremy, normally I, I've been asking this question and I've kind of just wanted to know what the, the, the response was from the person I was asking because we had an episode where we all talked about it and Jared and I actually agree for on one thing. I don't think it's a natural thing either. But in Jeff, I think Jeff and you are on the same page. But what I was going to say is let, let's talk about somebody like to your questions. We'll talk about it. Um, Tom Brady. Uh, if anybody's watched or anything on Tom Brady, Tom Brady, the moment like sees that the season is over, he's training for the next season. So your thing about Michael Jordan is, I would say, you said what would uh, what's keeping Jordan? What was keeping someone that practiced that had the same physical abilities as Jordan and practiced just as much from being just as good as Jordan? And I would say they were either just as good as Jordan or they didn't practice as much. And then to kind of maybe even a little bit more of what Jared said, J Brady and Jordan, I also think just had that mental toughness and fortitude. But I, I would think that if you asked Tom Brady um why he's so good and it's it's going to come down to he's yeah. he puts in the work like nobody else that's why he's the best quarterback ever is because he works harder than anyone's probably ever worked at it that's my guess i could be wrong because i'm i'm wrong a lot but that'd you know, be my guess yeah something else i just came to mind you remember uh in the last podcast we interviewed alex Goot. um you know he, he won nationals in uh 2016 right well when yep. he was talking he was the the he shows he he said when he was talking about that match like going into like into that match he knew he was able to win it. That is that is probably a big difference. Like I did not show up to nationals expecting to win, like any division. I expected to shoot well, but I did not expect to win. Like that that is another level 
of mental. That is knowing that you have worked hard enough, got the skill high enough, that you are mentally know that you can win the match. Yeah. Yeah. That was so, even a quote. I'm sorry, real quick. That was even a quote of Jordan's is he says he never he never worried or stressed about his, about uh the outcome. He said because he knew he put in the work. So Yeah, like I mean obviously I, I think hard work is is extremely important. Um but I it's I think our sports is a great example of like you it's not, not just the guy who shoots the most rounds the hardest that's the uh you look at like a guy like Phil Strader, I don't think he's ever shot more than thirteen thousand rounds in a year. And he's I mean, he won single stack nationals in a few years, um, but he's and he's usually in the I think he was fourth at this year's nationals. Maybe th- I think he was fourth, maybe third uh yeah. this year. Um and he his only training was at matches. I think he shot maybe like a thousand rounds outside of outside of like four or five matches and three or four locals. Um, but he's got He's got what you were talking about earlier. He's built the skill. He's just keep. He's just maintaining it now. He's yeah, but he's, but he's never put those big. He's never shot a lot of rounds. Yeah, but he's got twenty years of experience doing it. I mean, he shot a ton of matches. Yeah, uh, and I would say he's got the mental toughness. I I don't know about that with Phil Strader, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. Well, that's not either. Guess, but, He's yeah. been around for a long time. Is what I'm saying, like he shot, he shot in the sport for a very long time. Yeah, but so like, like I don't know. It's pretty, it's pretty hard to, uh, like I say, if you spend much time in in very many skill based endeavors, to just say that the person at the top is nobody's working as hard as that person. Um, I now I think if you're gonna be the best, then it you have to have talent and work harder than anybody else. Uh, if you're gonna be Eric Grafell. Uh, yeah, he's obviously put in, I mean, he, he shoots an unbelievable amount of rounds a year, uh, in the hundreds of thousands. Um, and he's obviously extremely gifted. Uh, I do think we, we define talent a little bit differently. Um, I think some of that mental fortitude is a talent. I think your ability to be analytical, I think that is a talent. Not everybody can be as analytical as Juancic. I think that has served him well. I think if I tried to break things down on the level that he does, I would probably, uh, I'd probably hurt myself. Um, well, and I think part of what I consider like attributes that might uh, contribute to someone being better or being able to become better than everyone else at something does not necessarily, I do not view that as a talent in itself. I view it as an attribute. It's kind of the same way as uh, like uh, you look at the, uh, the open squad, open super squad at nationals. Like almost everyone on that squad is under six foot tall and weighs probably somewhere between 150 and 180 pounds. They're small, little, fast guys. That does not necessarily mean that someone, um, say, you know, uh, Blake McGuess was on that squad this year. I think he finished like sixth or tenth or something in Open Nationals. He doesn't. He doesn't exactly fit the attribute that everyone else does there on as far as size, but he's still quite competitive. And it's because it's not that is not required to be good at it. But I definitely think it makes it easier for those guys to be good at it. But it's not a natural yeah. talent. It's a. It's an attribute that they're born with. It's not a talent though. It's just I'm either this. I'm this tall because of my parents' genetics, or it. I mean, that stuff all matters. That would be like saying just because I have large hands and control recoil well that I'm naturally talented at shooting, at like controlling recoil. That's not the case. 
So, like, I feel like you're basically just redefining talent as just you're saying talent's not a thing, and you're just no, describing no, talent, talent as being something else. Talent is a thing. Talent is <laughs> a learned. Talent is a learned skill at doing something. You don't. You don't just. You had to learn to walk. You had to learn to run. You had to learn to shoot a gun. There's people that excel at all of those things, but they did not. They did not wake up one day and know how to do it. They worked at it really hard. So Except Usain Bolt was not more talented at running than anybody else in the history of the world. Who? Maybe Usain not. Bolt. But but that's also a physical thing. That's like Jerry. That's like someone being six foot five. He's probably just got the right build, and, and maybe I, I don't know. There's a lot of guys that are his build that are aren't as fast. So yeah, that's a good point. But the guys that absolutely excel at that, it's a combination of having the right attributes, having the right uh, skill set, like as far as like the mental toughness and everything, and then executing the work to get to that level. They did not. If you take out any one of those things, he wasn't going to be there. He had to do the work. So I don't call it natural talent. We're gonna argue about this for like five hours. We should probably. Nip it's this okay, bus, but you can just stay wrong, and that's fine. Dude, exactly. Jeremy loves to argue. He's not like me. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't mind this. Like this is cool. I, I think. I think you learn things that make you better, and then when you go to do something new, you learned how to do things and how to get better and how to stick it out and how to just be efficient and then when you pick up something new you already got skills for instance you played you played the trumpet and you learned how to do that ben said he played the cello learned how to practice so when he started shooting guns he knew how to practice and he started saying okay i've got to do what's the fundamentals it's okay and playing an instrument it would be a scale well okay what's the scale equivalent in shooting it's got to be you know marksmanship or something and so he got he he broke it down even if it was instinctively it's just something that was learned, in my opinion. A good, a good example, you said you played the trumpet, right? Yeah. So several years ago, I was watching something on TV one time, and they were going to make a movie about Louis Armstrong. Mm-hmm. And I think the guy that played in the movie was Don Cheadle. I don't know if you know who that actor is. Yeah. And, and they said, hey, he, he said, well, what, you know, why can't they, they had a, I think they had a stand-in during the trumpet parts. And they're like, well, why, I want me to get good at playing the trumpet. And they're like, to get remotely believable it would take you two years and and he was like okay so they used a stand-in so trumpet you ain't gonna walk up and just pick up a trumpet and start busting out songs you're not gonna do it you gotta learn it even if you understand the music part of it being a musician you're not gonna do it yes you'll pick it up faster you're wrong like there actually are kids like that that like they're musical savants and they do pick up stuff that fast you might have a point there because <laughs> there are, I mean, there are those things, right? There yeah. are, yes, there are kids like that. They just pick it up and they just, they just do it. Yeah. Uh, and they're, they're instantly good. Um, like that, like, so that there are instances where that does happen. I think we see it in our sport. I mean, I think we can point to a lot of people that are like, they come into the sport and just within one year, I mean, Max Leagranis won, PCC Nationals, his second year in the sport, I think. I was just listening to a podcast with him on Mike, and Mike Seeklander. He'd been in the sport for two years, and he won. he's now won three PCC Nationals. Well, wasn't um, that only like the second year it was there? So somebody had to win it. No, he won it, the first year, he won it the first year it was a thing. That's what um, I'm saying. Somebody had to but, win it. <laughs> but I don't think he would have the same level of success in pistol shooting. I think he was just the first one to figure out shooting the rifle in our game. 
Possibly. Um, but like, it's kind of like, do you think you could, you think in two years you can shoot at his level? If I gave you a PCC right now? No, but I also have no interest in shooting the rifle. So I would never put the level of work in required. Yeah. So like, but there are guys that are putting in as much work as, I mean, you look at, look at other guys and, and Max is pulling away. Like the first two years, PCC was really close. This year, PCC was not that close. And like I said, I, I think he figured out how to shoot it. Like, I mean, you see him, he shoots super fast, super aggressive. Yeah. And, and a lot of the other guys don't shoot that way. Yeah, because he's, he's really talented. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say he wasn't good, but he had to learn how to do it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, obviously, like, like our definitions of talent are different, and so at that point, then we're not going to agree, and that's okay. No, we're not. I mean, you're. It's okay. You can be wrong. That's fine. Jeff I is, see it. Really I, uncomfortable I, right now. I, I, you, I see you, it more of a um, that we're both we're both probably wrong, and we're both probably got some you know both probably wrong and right on aspects. I'm right. I told y'all what it was on that first episode. I just didn't understand. But uh, normally this would have went, uh, when, when I asked you the question, you would have just answered and we would have ended the podcast. But they yeah. couldn't keep their mouth shut this time. Well, Je- Jeff Jeff kept uh, going. I mean, Jared kept going. And our, I, I, so. do, I do think we should uh, pitch this one off because we've got to be getting close to an hour long. Oh, yeah, was my that... wife sent me a text asking if I was fighting on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Tell her you're winning. Tell her you're winning. I am winning. Yeah, I do need to text you. So if you were more talented at fighting on the podcast, you would have won. That's, that's probably true. All right. Well, we can pinch this one off. It's been Jeremy, really good. Thank you for joining us. Yes, Jeremy, thanks. Absolutely. Glad you guys had me on. Uh, love to come on again. And uh, hey, this is my first podcast I've been on, so you guys were – kind of the first ones brave enough to uh do that so props to you guys brave enough dumb enough eh, same difference yeah there's a chance y'all like this may be the last podcast y'all ever do i just i really i have a broken 1911 in the safe i need to send to somebody so i was like we should invite him on there you go. i can drag it behind my truck and it'll be smoother <laughs> this is the uh this will be our second one in a row to have like two top shooters that it was their first podcast I think that's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. What? It's weird. Anyway, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. You'll you'll, you'll be back on for sure. Yeah. Good deal. That should be fun. Thanks, thanks man. All right, Jeff, All right. go ahead and stop the recording. Oh, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs>